Well, welcome. It is great to see you. Uh, so glad you're here. Uh, let me pause here at the beginning to also welcome those who are joining us online, those who are joining us at our east location, our downtown location as well. Glad that all of you are here uh, with us today. Uh, my name is Nicholas. I'm the creative arts pastor here at Fountain Springs, and I have the privilege today of continuing our series, Who is Jesus? And what we've been doing is looking at a number of different titles, uh, characteristics that help us understand who Jesus is. And so to this point, you can go back and watch these uh, online, but to this point, we have talked about Jesus as God, Jesus as our advocate, Jesus as our shepherd, and then uh, last week we talked about Jesus as our fighter, one who fights for us. And today I have the privilege of talking about Jesus as our healer. What does that mean? And uh, if you've been around church as much or you've just been around this country long enough, I suppose, you've had maybe some sort of run-in with uh, people of faith, Christians on TV talking about healing. Maybe it conjures up images of gray-haired tele-evangelists who miraculously heal everybody who comes into contact with them, right? And uh, maybe it creates a little bit of doubt in your minds, and that's perfectly understandable. But it is a topic that we need to talk about, and so I get the chance to do that with you today. But before we move forward... I want to ask you to do something with me because we're going to get into kind of like some brainy, nerdy, thinky, thoughty uh, kind of topics here. And uh, we don't always like to think about stuff like that. So I'm going to ask your permission. And then I need to tell you that uh, what I've actually done is like I've placed in front of you, it's floating right in the air in front of you. I've placed like an invisible imaginary thinking cap right in front of you, just floating right there. So I'm going to ask you if you'd participate with me, just kind of reach right in front of you and grab that imaginary invisible uh, thinking cap and then just kind of Pop it on your head there. Good. We're ready. Uh, we have permission. We're going to talk about some really interesting things. Um, I want to talk about the name of Jesus first, okay? I want to talk about the name of Jesus and specifically his last name, right? So when we think of the name of Jesus, we see Jesus Christ. Now, of course, I know. I hope you know that I know. Christ is not his last name, okay? Sort of a joke. Uh, but we often use it like a last name, don't we? Like we often kind of treat Christ like it is his last name. We say things like Christ is Lord or Christ is risen. In fact, uh, if you're going to join us on Easter, and I hope you do, don't forget to get your tickets, uh, Easter.fs. Church, you can sign up, commercial over. Um, but come with us, join us on Easter. And often, if you show up in a church on Easter, you'll hear people say something like, Christ is risen. And then the rest of the people around will respond with, like, a, He's risen indeed, right? We use this title uh, almost as a name in itself. But I wonder if we all know what exactly does it mean when we say Jesus. Christ. So I want to kind of pull that name, that title apart a little bit for us today, okay? So Christ is actually the English version of a Greek word called Christos, all right? Maybe you've heard of that word, but it also forces us to ask another question, all right? What exactly does Christos mean? Well, Christos is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Moshiach, all right? Well, maybe you don't know if we're getting more clear or more confusing at this moment, right? Mashiach is the Hebrew version of the English word Messiah. That's how it's translated back to English. But that's not actually what the word Mashiach, the Hebrew word, means. The strict definition of Mashiach is anointed one. The word actually means anointed one. We seem to be getting closer to an understanding, I think, but I think there's a couple more questions to ask here. First, well, anointed for what? What? 
In the ancient world, it was kings who were anointed. In 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 13, there is this scene where Samuel the priest is called by God to the home of a man named Jesse. And Jesse's got a whole litter of sons. And uh, Samuel is told that one of those sons is going to be the future king of Israel. And Samuel is supposed to go there and find him. And he goes sort of like... uh, He goes to Jesse's house and he's standing in front of his sons, kind of walks down the row one at a time. Nope, you're not the one, you're not the one, you're not the one. And eventually he gets to the end of the sons and somehow he's confused. And then Jesse says, oh, I have one more son. It's my youngest son. He's a shepherd. He's out in the fields taking care of the flocks. And Samuel says, well, would you call him here? So this is uh, his youngest son, David. David comes running up and immediately he stands in front of Samuel and Samuel knows from God that David is to be the next king. And God tells Samuel, pour some oil out of your horn. He was carrying a horn full of olive oil. Pour some oil out of your horn and anoint David as the future king of Israel. So kings were anointed. And they were anointed with olive oil. And this oil sort of represents, sort of memorializes this moment when the God of the universe interacts with men and women like us. He comes down into the human world and it helps us remember something powerful here happened. Something divine here happened. God intervened in humanity. So when we say Jesus is the Christ, or we say something like Jesus Christ, what we're saying is Jesus is our anointed one. He is our Mashiach, our Messiah. And we are also saying that we believe our Messiah is the one prophesied about in the Old Testament. Our Messiah is the one true king. Jesus is the king, and our king is actually in control of everything that is happening around us. It's not someone else. It's not the president of this country. It's not the king of another country. We believe that Jesus is the one true king, and our king cares for us. That's what we mean when we say Jesus is the Christ. But that doesn't actually prove he is the Messiah That's just a title we use. I've just defined it. So how will we know if Jesus actually is the Messiah that God promised the people of Israel? Well, the question comes up in an episode with John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. John asks a very similar question. Now, John was the one who foretold the coming of Jesus. The Gospels say that he was the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus said of John, there is no one greater born of women than John the Baptist. There's a tremendous amount of respect between Jesus and John the Baptist. It was John the Baptist who baptized Jesus, who endorsed Jesus with sort of like a rabbinic authority. And then there's this moment in Matthew 11 when John is actually, uh, he's he's, he's near the end of his life. He's been imprisoned for confronting a corrupt king and his days are numbered. And he calls his disciples to him. And in verse two, he says this. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Those are some really interesting questions from a guy. He's actually Jesus' cousin. From a guy who knows Jesus, it would seem well. These are some pretty interesting questions. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? 
Now, there's a fascinating response we see here from Jesus, but it isn't what you'd think it would be. He doesn't say, yes, yes, go tell John I am the Messiah. I'm here. Let's celebrate, right? That's not what he says. He's almost like talking in code. Look what he says in response. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed um, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It's a sort of interesting response, isn't it, to those questions, are you the one who is to come? Well, throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, there are these prophetic tellings of what the Messiah is going to be like when the Messiah comes. One of those is found in Isaiah 35. That's what Jesus is referencing here. In Isaiah 35, we read that when Messiah comes, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will leap, and the mute will be, um, uh, the language actually says, unstopped. They'll be able to speak, right? There's another prophecy in Malachi chapter 7 that says, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. See, when we want to know whether or not Jesus is actually the Messiah, often for people like you and I, it's a conversation about, is he actually God? Is he divine? Is he actually God? Because that's all we need to know. But for John the Baptist, this incredibly influential Figure, figure in the Bible, when John wanted to know if Jesus was the Messiah, it didn't hinge on whether or not he was God. It hinged on whether or not he was healer. Are you the one who is to come? Are you healing people? Jesus is speaking the same language. Go tell John exactly what you've seen. Yes, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And this is why we see Jesus often throughout his story healing people, people with skin diseases, people with blood diseases, people with um, uh, 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 paralysis, uh, people raised from the dead. We see healings over and over again. It's a fascinating um, thing to consider. And so as we, as, we, as we think about these stories, I want to highlight one story with you today. And it's a story that's found in the book of Luke. It's found in Luke chapter 8. And it's a story about a person that I think we'll all, re- we'll all be able to relate to. And this person was healed by Jesus. So it takes place in Luke chapter 8. We'll start here. They sailed to the region. They, the disciples and Jesus, sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. Now let me show you a map just so you can kind of envision the area that we're talking about. The Sea of Galilee is in northern Israel. Israel is shaped kind of like New Jersey or something. It's, very, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long rectangle. And it's in the northern part of that rectangle. And Jesus spends most of his time up here, Capernaum, Bethsaida. He spends most of his time, Nazareth is like over here. That's where he spends most of his time. But he and his disciples are called to go across the lake to this area over here, the region of the Gerasenes. The city's called Sisita, the region of the Gerasenes. Now this city, it lies in a region known as the Decapolis. Decapolis means 10 cities, Deca, 10, Polis, cities, 10 cities. But they weren't just 10 cities. They were the 10 pagan cities. They were known for being exceptionally evil cities, places where no one worshiped God. And so to be going to these places, to go to the Decapolis, was like, it was, it was a movement for the disciples and Jesus to sort of like go behind enemy lines. They were going like into the belly of the beast, if you're familiar with a phrase like that. They're going into this spiritually dark place 
to do some sort of ministry. Jesus is leading them there. But it's dangerous. And the disciples sort of know this. And on the way over, there's this episode, like while they're on the lake, where Jesus is in the bottom of the boat uh, sleeping. And there's kind of like the waves start to rock the boat a little bit. And then it gets worse. And then there's this enormous storm. And it says, the disciples are afraid for their lives. Jesus comes up and he calms the storms. And he says, why, why do you have such little faith? That's what happened on the way over. There was this enormous storm as they're going into the dark place, right? You can sort of imagine this like maybe in a movie, like the drama is building. This is the world the disciples are walking into and they're afraid. And when they get there, let's look at what happens. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes. I already read that, sorry. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Uh, Next slide there. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. So let's, uh, let's try to picture the scene that the disciples and Jesus walk into. They come across the lake. There's a great storm. They're going into the dark place, right? The underworld. And when they step on shore, here comes this absolute lunatic running at them and screaming, don't torture me, don't torture me, don't torture me. And what do we know about this guy? Well, the book of Matthew tells us that he cuts himself with stones. So he's covered in blood. And then another nice little wrinkle in this story is that he doesn't wear clothes, so he's completely naked, uh, and he's crazy. So here is, this, um, here is this crazy, naked, bloody guy. Like I said, it's, it's someone that I think we can all relate to, right? Who hasn't had a day where you're you know, covered in your own blood, running around naked, screaming things at people that you don't know? We've all been there, right? No? Uh, it's an interesting scene. And then we find out he lives in tombs you know, where dead bodies are. And the people from the town are so confused with what to do with him that they just try to tie him up with chains. But it turns out he's also freakishly strong. And so he can just break the chains and torment the people of the city. No one knows what to do with the guy. So they come on to shore and here is this man who's losing his mind. And what does Jesus want to know? Many times it had seized him. The demons had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven by the demon into these solitary places. And Jesus asks him, what is your name? Who are you? You just came up to me uh, acknowledging that I'm the son of God. Who are you? Now, when do you think is the last time this man had been asked that question? What is your name? Hadn't been asked it in ages probably. Oh, crazy, naked, bloody guy? Yeah, no one cares what his name is. We just try to like chain him up in the tomb so we don't have to deal with him. I mean, presumably at some point, he had a family in this community. He had classmates when he was a kid in this community. He had coworkers in this community. At some point, someone had to know who he was. And now his life is so messed up that people sort of want to pretend that he doesn't even exist. His life's about as bad as a life can get. He's covered in blood. He's extremely isolated. He's living alone. And can you see sort of like what this image represents for people like us? Have you ever known anyone? Have you ever been someone who felt like vulnerable and exposed? Who felt like deeply wounded in a way that everyone could see? Who felt isolated, shoved to the side, overlooked? People don't care 
what your name is. And this is the kind of person that Jesus asks directly, who are you? Tell me your story. What is your name? Well, let's look at what the man says. He says, legion. Because many demons had gone into him and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, Sisita is the only city where there are cliffs that sort of fall into the Sea of Galilee, right? The only city on the, on the sea. Um, when those telling the pigs or tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And all the people from the town went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found crazy naked bloody guy from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. He says in the beginning of this section that his name is Legion. For I am many. Now a legion in the ancient world was a unit of like three to 5,000 soldiers. And so the implication here, the direct implication is he's got thousands of demons living inside of him. But sort of the way that maybe we understand this is he is this person who has made so many concessions along the way in life, so many compromises. He's given in so many times, becoming something different in every setting that he's in, that he doesn't remember who he is anymore. Who am I? I don't know. I'm about a million people. Who's asking? Are you asking me when I'm at school? Are you asking me when I'm at work? Are you asking me when I'm on Twitter? Are you asking me when I'm on Facebook? There are all these different, can you see how this relates to our culture? We have all these different versions of who we are. This man is like deeply, deeply broken. He's wounded, he's vulnerable, he's exposed. His life can't get much worse. And it's into this moment that the people witness he has now been cured, healed by Jesus. And he's sitting on the ground in his right mind. What a story. There are stories like this throughout the Gospels. If you spend much time there, you'll just encounter one after another. And as awesome as this story is... Can we be honest when we say that like one of the problems with a story like this is it sort of forces us to ask, okay, that's great. So then why hasn't God healed my broken story? What about my pain? Legion got taken care of. That story's really old, but what about my pain? So I want to have a conversation about healing with you today. As far as I can tell, Jesus seems primarily interested in two kinds of healing. He's interested first in physical healing. And this is often where he begins his relationship with people. Usually they have a physical need, a need that exists in the physical world, and he comes alongside them and he meets that need. But there is also spiritual healing. And Jesus is always, always more interested in spiritual healing. This is always where his conversations are going. He always wants to get people to a place when he, where he's healing their spirit. And I think you can probably understand why. For us, our physical pain gets most of our attention. If you've ever had a backache, if you've ever had a headache, physical pain is something that can just... It can completely alter your world. And we avoid physical pain at all costs. From like the, our first breath as babies, we avoid physical pain. We cry. We want comfort. Think about the world that we're living in today. People are buying up all of the toilet paper and hand sanitizer, sanitizer in sight. 
Because there's a potential that at the end of the day, we could end up with some sort of condition that causes physical pain, and we don't like physical pain. Now, Jesus seems to understand that physical pain is a part of the human experience. And so he's, again, like we mentioned earlier, often healing people. He's engaged in their physical pain. But he's always, always, always most interested in what's happening in their spiritual world. He's interested in bringing them spiritual healing. And maybe one way to understand it would be like this. What would actually be more impressive for the Messiah for the Mashiach, what would be more impressive, to straighten your spine or to straighten your soul? I mean, imagine if if God is God and he created all that is, certainly he would have the power to physically heal a body. That's not that, if he's God, he should be able to do that, right? What kind of God couldn't do that? But what does it say about a God who in the midst of free will and allowing you to make your own decisions and to be yourself, what if that God can find a way to win your heart, to put the spiritual parts of you back together again, that would be more impressive, wouldn't it? He's actually, Jesus has actually asked the question in Matthew chapter 9. He comes up to a paralyzed man and he says, uh, Sir, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. And there's some like priests and teachers of the law nearby and they're outraged. They said, This is blasphemy. How dare you tell this man his sins are forgiven? And Jesus says, well, let me ask you, which is easier for me to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, why don't you get up and walk? And then he says, but just so you know, I have the power to do both. He's always interested in our physical healing, but he's more interested in our spiritual healing. It matters the person that you're becoming on the inside. Because here's the thing, eventually... Eventually, hopefully hopefully it's a long, long time for everyone in this room, but eventually our bodies break down. We die. Time is contagious. Eventually, my, my heart will stop beating. My brain will stop functioning, and I won't exist anymore. But the spiritual part of who I am, that's eternal. That goes on forever. Like, the... The version of you that makes you you is the spiritual version of you. And that is the person that Jesus came first and foremost to heal. The person that you are on the inside, your spirit, because it's eternal. Jesus has come to heal your soul. If you remember in week one, Pastor David said that it was actually this sort of spiritual healing, the forgiveness of sins, that led to Jesus being crucified. It wasn't the miracles. It wasn't the crowds. They didn't have any problem with that. But he was absolving people's guilt. He was healing who they were on the inside, and that was unacceptable. Jesus wants to heal our spirits, and that's why we talk about it so often around Fountain Springs. We really, really believe that you having an encounter with the God of the universe, with the anointed one, with Jesus the Messiah, can change everything about your life the same way that it did Legion. It can change the spiritual reality for you, and you can be nearly unrecognizable on the other side of it. Now, let me say, I believe entirely everything that I've talked about so far, okay? I really, really do believe it. It's very important, and I believe in spiritual healing. But I need to also say, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated, but I need to also say that it isn't enough for me to say what I've said. That is not enough to say on the topic of healing. It's not enough for me to stand up here in front of you and suggest that your physical pain, pain from the physical world, is something you just have to endure until you die someday, and then you get to go to heaven and 
it'll be wonderful because you're, you're spiritually healed. It's not enough to say that you just need to deal with your pain until you get to the other side because we believe that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is redeeming us here and now. And we believe that God is making us new, not just across the threshold of death, but here and now. And that's really important because as far as I can tell, everyone in this room is here now. So it matters. We need to have this conversation. We need to ask some questions like, all right, why is there so much brokenness in the world? Why is there so much pain in the world? Why hasn't God fixed your broken story? Why hasn't God healed you? These are real. These are honest questions. If there are two kinds of healing, I think it's worth noting that there are also two kinds of pain. The first is a pain that I would call public pain. Public pain often involves like these great global tragedies. They're bad things that happen, but mostly to other people. So they don't concern us so much, right? We try to understand how is it that Hitler's Third Reich happened? How is it that the communists took over Russia? How is it that there's human trafficking, that there's poverty, that there's disease, that violent crime seems to happen randomly? We want answers for stuff like this. And so sometimes we use what are called theodicies to explain it. A theodicy, theodicy just means the vindication of God. And so we come up with these explanations for how God can still be good, even though there's evil in the world. You've probably at least toyed around with some of these kinds of thoughts. We ask questions like, um, how did the world get this way? We want rational, logical answers. And maybe we would read a book like C.S. Lewis's The Problem of Pain, where he says, the real problem is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but why some do not. We want justice. We want fairness. Why do bad things happen to good people? Those are the questions we ask when we're talking about public pain. But can I say there's another kind of pain that's a lot heavier? Quite simply, I'll just call it personal pain. Personal pain involves deep individual suffering. It's a first-person encounter with pain. The vindication of God is useless when we're talking about our personal pain. It's just not that helpful. We have this like subjective experience with pain, and we ask different questions, and we're seeking different answers. When it comes to personal pain, we use words like grief, and doubt, and confusion, and anger, and desperation. We don't ask questions like, how did the world get this way? We ask questions like, how am I ever going to survive? How am I going to get through this? My world is devastated. We might reference another C.S. Lewis book, this one called A Grief Observed, when he says, it's not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. C.S. Lewis wrote that first book, A Problem of Pain, in response to World War II and our discovery of the Holocaust. Great global tragedy. But he wrote a grief observed when his wife Joy died. About Joy, he said, her absence is like the sky that covers, the sky spread over everything. It's this suffering that, like, that, that covers the entire world. Nothing escapes it. There's nothing outside of it. Some of you have known that kind of personal pain before. 
you've known what it's like to feel like you want answers. And you're just sort of in this holding pattern of pain. And I think we need to be honest about this in a church. I think we can be honest about this in a church. Some of you have prayed without ceasing that God would heal you that God would fix your situation. And you, at the end of the day, you're just kind of left with this, I don't understand why God won't intervene. Why won't, I read stories of healing. Why doesn't God heal me? Why doesn't God fix this? How many of you have prayed for healing that didn't come? Or you've prayed for like reconciled relationships that never happened. Maybe you've prayed for like freedom from an addiction that you actually hate. And it hasn't appeared. And you've just been waiting and waiting and waiting. And can I be honest with you? I don't know why. I don't know why God hasn't fixed the things that are causing you pain. I don't know. I don't know why God allows sometimes the people that are supposed to love us most to hurt us so badly. I don't know why God allows our parents, our moms and our dads to die early. Sometimes God allows our children to die early. I don't know why God allows us to get terminal illnesses or to be physically abused. I wish I had better answers, but can I tell you, I have my own questions from my own life that I can't make sense of. Childhood pain, pain as an adult, and I, it's personal pain. But I think at least like part of coming to an answer to these questions is recognizing this, that While the world is like beautiful and magical and enchanting, it is also at times like brutal and wicked and cruel. It just is. We all know the world isn't as it should be. It's why some New Testament writers, they said things like, uh, all of creation is groaning for the day that things will be set right. Because we know they're not right. We know things aren't as they should be. And so our hope as followers of Jesus isn't, oh, glory be, God is in heaven, everything is right in the world because we know everything's not right in the world and we're not delusional. But maybe our hope is something more like, all is not right in the world, but God is here in it with us. Maybe our hope in the midst of the deepest personal pain is that we're not alone. That Jesus, our anointed one, our Messiah, is here with us. If you remember when he was born, one of the angels told his mother to name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. We are not alone in our pain. Yes, the world is a brutal place, but God is here with us. And so my absolute favorite author is a Presbyterian minister named Frederick Beekner, and probably his most famous quote is this, here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen, don't be afraid. If our king is present with us and our king is in control, then we don't have to be afraid, even in the midst of pain. We are not alone. God is using our pain. He's he's working in us in the midst of our pain. Because even though God doesn't cause our pain, God doesn't waste our pain either. He uses it to make us into a better version of ourselves. And then that becomes an opportunity for us to tell the story of how we collided with God 
And something beautiful happened out of it, and it gives hope and inspiration to people who are still at the early stages of their personal pain. One more thing. Let's come back to that story about Legion from the beginning, because there's one more part of the story that you need to know. What would you expect Jesus to do with this guy now that he's healed him? The guy says he wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 you can stay home. But think about how great it would be, right? You go around, you preach the gospel, you make an invitation, you bring out crazy naked bloody guy, he tells his story, boom, right? The altar's full of people. How would that not work? But that's not what happens. Jesus doesn't take him with him. Look what he does. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and he left. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell about how much God has done for you. So the man went away and he told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Crazy thing about this story is, Legion went back into his community as the only missionary as far as the eye could see. He was not a trained seminarian. He was not a pastor. Probably didn't have a copy of the biblical text. Wasn't listening to Chris Tomlin. All he did was go back and tell his story. And it worked. So much so that the next time Jesus shows up in this region, there are crowds of people waiting for him when he steps off the boat to heal their sick. In fact, this community, Sasita, became a vibrant Christian community for hundreds of years after Jesus was gone. In the 300s and the 400s, when decisions were made about what the church was going to look like, even today, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, at every one of those councils, there was a bishop from the church in Sasita who voted. When I was in Israel in 05, 06, something like that, I took this picture. It's ruins from a 6th century Christian church in Sasita. It's a cross of Jesus. He went back and he told his story and it changed everything about his community. It changed his life, changed his community's life, changed the life of people for hundreds of years. Because his story collided with God's story. Now let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. I think for some of us here, for some of us, we'll start easy. For some of us, what we need to do is we need to recognize what our sasita is. Who are the people that you need to go tell what Jesus has done for you to? Because maybe you're a person who would say, yeah, my life's okay now, but if you could have seen me three years ago, you wouldn't believe what a mess I was. And then I had this encounter with Jesus, the Messiah, and it changed everything for me. There are people who need to hear that story. So maybe you need to be telling your story. You need to figure out where it needs to be heard. But maybe there are also people here who genuinely, actually, need physical healing. You need healing in your physical world. We sincerely believe that Jesus is capable of healing our bodies, absolutely unequivocally. Doesn't always happen, but definitely happens. We're gonna make space for you to pray for healing with someone from our church in just a moment. Maybe you're here and you need spiritual healing. Maybe on the inside, you're just not the person you used to be anymore. Maybe you used to walk a little closer to God and now you're just a person you don't recognize as well. And you need to close that distance again. You need some sort of spiritual healing. We're gonna make space for you to pray with someone from our church here in a minute too. But the third option, I guess it's the fourth, 
might be maybe you relate most to Legion. Maybe you need an entirely different story. It is not working. You are wounded and you are isolated and you are vulnerable and you need a change. And if that is you, I would beg you, do not leave this place. Don't spend another day living like that. You were created for more than that. And we're going to have an opportunity. If that is you, come to the front and pray with someone. They would love to pray with you as you kind of fall at the feet of Jesus, the Messiah, and surrender your life. So I'm going to ask our leaders to come and get into place even right now so that you can see where they are. And I know, I know it's, it can be tough to come forward and admit that we have needs. But I want to encourage you to do it. There's an ancient Christian practice of anointing people with oil when we pray prayers like this. It's derived from James chapter 5. If you're sick, if you're in need, go to the leaders of the church and let them pray for you. Now this oil... It's not magic oil, it's not medicinal, it's not essential. Uh, It's olive oil with like some fragrances mixed into it. But the oil represents the power of our anointed one, the healing power. It represents the God who came down into humanity to heal us. So let's pray. Almighty God, I believe that there are people with us today who have deep physical and spiritual needs and they are in need of healing. And we believe that you love us and you care for us and you want to heal us. So I pray, God, in this moment, you would give us the courage to come forward and to receive a prayer of healing. God, we believe in your power. You are our anointed one. You are our king and you love us. You are here with us. We praise you for that. And we pray this in your name, amen. So even if it's awkward, I wanna encourage you right now, stand up where you are, start walking forward and pray with one of our leaders here at the front of the church.